It is no great secret, or at least it shouldn't be, that we as God's children are to be totally and completely different from the world. We are to be totally and completely different from the lost and dying and sin-darkened world all around us, Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. We are to be different in every aspect of our being. Scripture confirms this vital truth in a number of places. We are to be strangers and aliens, or sojourners and pilgrims, depending upon your translation, during our time here, 1 Peter chapter 2, what does it mean to be a stranger and an alien? Well, if you've ever traveled to a foreign country, perhaps you know. <laughs> we are different. We as strangers and aliens are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans chapter 12. Our citizenship, like those great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, is in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. That's our home. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. We are to be different. We are soldiers. 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. We are soldiers that are serving on foreign, hostile, and sinful soil while we are awaiting the arrival of our commanding officer Jesus, the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2.10. We're serving as soldiers while we are awaiting him to come and to evacuate us and extract us and return us to his homeland when our mission here is over. Everything about us is to be different. We are soldiers serving in a strange land. This is a strange land, or it ought to be to us. A strange land full of strange customs, a strange land full of strange morals, they'd ought to be strange to us as Christians. Strange language, strange lifestyles, strange definitions, strange standards, all of those things that are completely contrary to the morals and language and lifestyle and definition and standards of our beloved our homeland, our beloved heavenly homeland, that beloved heavenly homeland to which we all want to get back to, which we all long for to live forever when our battle here is over alongside our Lord and Savior and our Father in heaven. We are to be strangers. Everything about us should be different. And it is that strange language that I really want to focus in on this morning. It is that strange language versus the language of our beloved and heavenly homeland, which will serve as our focus for both lessons today. You know, Karen and I, as we've traveled around the country and I've served in different areas of the country, we've often had a lot of fun with the different, I never knew there were so many different English languages. But the language issue here that we're talking about this morning is a matter of eternal life and death. Brethren, truth matters. Words matter. Words to us must mean 
what God said they mean. And God's children must never change or corrupt or compromise or surrender the language of our heavenly heritage, the language of our heavenly homeland, which the Lord our God gave us to speak in his word. We must always speak where the Bible speaks. Speak as the Bible speaks. Call Bible things by Bible names. And in last Sunday evening's lesson, we discussed this very thing in light of the events that are recorded in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 27. And for those of you that maybe weren't here last Sunday night or you're hearing this for the first time, I encourage you to go back and to listen to that lesson as well. But in Nehemiah 13, 23 through 27, we saw where God's Old Testament people chose to engage in such close and intimate personal relationships with the pagan and ungodly people of Ashdod that half of their children no longer spoke the language of God. Half their kids couldn't even, didn't even know how to speak the language of, of Judah, as it says there. And because as New Testament Christians, we are God's New Testament children. And because the scriptures tell us that the things that God had written down for us that happened to them were done so to help us avoid the mistakes they made. Romans 15, 4, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. Because of that, it is imperative. God said, I had these things written down for you so you could avoid their mistakes. So it is imperative that we listen to those things that are written down. It is imperative that we pay very close attention to their mistakes, that we don't repeat them. One of the things I would like for us to remember throughout both lessons today is this, because it's so impactful for us, it applies so heavily to us. Listen, the citizens of Ashdod, as we talk about Nehemiah 13, the, the citizens of Ashdod, like so many of the Philistines, and like so many people around us today, were a very religious but still pagan people. Don't, don't miss that. They were an extremely religious, but still pagan people. How is that even possible? How, how is that even possible? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because they did not speak the language. No, the word nor obey the law and truth of the one almighty God of heaven. That's how they could be highly religious, but still pagan. They were religious, but they just didn't know and speak and, and obey the language of the word of God. That is what separated the religious people from God then, that is, the Ashdod people. It is what separates highly religious people from God today and it is what will separate us from God today if we follow in their footsteps and we do not know and use and teach our kids the language of our heavenly homeland. This is also confirmed for us in scripture. In Amos chapter three, where we see that God's promise of punishment and condemnation would be the same for his own people as it was the people of Ashdod, 
if his own people followed the people of Ashdod, which makes sense. If, if God's people were going to follow along and continue to do what the pagans did, then they were going to wind up where the pagans would. It makes perfect sense. How does that apply to us? Well, we live in a world today where millions of those around us neither understand, care to comprehend, or want to do anything other than deny, discard, desecrate and destroy the language of the Lord. They want to replace the language of the Lord. They want to replace God's definitions and God's words with their own humanly devised and, I might add, demonized language. There's a lot of people in our world today, just like those of whom the Apostle Paul wrote, when he said, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. And you know, it's interesting. That right after Paul writes that in Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, it's very interesting that in the verses immediately following those two in that chapter, Romans 10, he goes right into the fact that the reason these people had not submitted to God, despite their zeal for God, was guess what? Because they did not know, and they did not understand, or they did not accept the word and the language and the message of God. Isn't that amazing? Just like Nehemiah 13. Wow. Really, Paul? Yeah, really. Romans 10. And sadly, today's wave of pagan word perversion, which has swept through the religious world at large, constantly seeking to penetrate and to permeate and to overcome and to overwhelm the Lord's church and this is particularly true when it comes to our youth. How many of you have ever heard something along the lines of well, the Bible's just old-fashioned. You ever heard that? Well, the Bible's just outdated. See, those are pagan Ashdod terms. Because you know what God says about his word in light of those things? What, what the pagan world calls old-fashioned and out of date, that is God's word, you know what God calls it? God calls it eternal. Or the word forever is actually the word used in Psalm 119, verse 89. God calls it eternal. In other words, it's not old-fashioned or out of date. It's always perfectly in date. It's, it's, it's forever firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever, eternally. Not only, not only that, but you'll often hear some people say, well, the Bible has mistakes in it. The Bible has flaws in it. Flaws and mistakes in the word of God. That's pagan language. Because I'll tell you, you know what the language of God says? We better know what the language of God says. The language of God says his word is perfect. Psalm 19. Verse 7, the word of the Lord is perfect. That's what God says. That's God's language. My word's perfect, he says. What I want for us to understand is that one of Satan's greatest weapons, write it down, one of Satan's greatest weapons is language manipulation. One of his greatest, most effective, and most soul-destroying weapons is language manipulation. How do I define language manipulation? Simply this. Making that which is evil 
appear to be good. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. And making that which is good appear to be or to get talked about as evil. Isaiah 5, 20 through 25, which we talked about last week. It's kind of like this. I once heard this illustration. I loved it. It's, it was like this. It's like there's a store where you go to buy things. Or maybe it could be a car dealership. It could be anywhere where you go to buy things. And Satan snuck in one night and he switched all the tags. The things which were the least expensive, he put the highest price tags on. And the, and the things which were the most expensive and the most priceless, he put the, the smallest price tag on. So when you walk in the next day, you're thinking, well, the more I pay, the better I get, right? I mean, that's the way it usually is with service. The more you pay, the better, the better you get. And so you, you think something is really, really pricey and important and valuable, and you go over to this thing, and it's got the highest price in the whole store on it. Pick it up, it's junk. When you stop and think about it, that's really what Satan has done with language. He's made us feel as though the things that are valueless in this life that you can't take with you are the most valuable, hasn't he? Hasn't he done that largely in this world, whether it's money or entertainment or, or whatever it happens to be, that these things that we all just got to have are just the most valuable things. And, and we have people that, that don't stay in church and, and they, they become part of the church and then they leave the church because they're pursuing all these things of the world. It's like, it's like those are more important. See, Satan has switched to pride. This is the most valuable thing on the planet. You know why? Because this is going to carry me beyond this planet. This is where value is. But, but, but Satan has... Is, is sown this like sowing the tares among the wheat, as, as the Bible talks about. Satan has come in under the cover of darkness, and he has, he has slowly sown his soul-destroying definitions into the law and the truth and the language of Almighty God. That, that's what he's done. Language manipulation. Exchanging the truth of God. Truth Is the truth valuable? All, all important, right? Satan has come in and exchanged, gotten people to exchange the truth of God for a lie and deceive them into serving themselves and their own hearts and wants and desires instead of God's. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, you know the account. It's the account of the Tower of Babel. God confused the languages for his own noble, perfect purposes. But Satan took that, that process of confusing language. God did it for a wonderful and noble purpose, but, but Satan saw how effective that was, and, and Satan himself adopted it and twisted it into his evil and deadly arsenal, getting people to boast and lie against the truth which is the word of God, John 17, 17. And what happens when people boast and lie against the truth and they, they don't say Bible things in Bible ways, but, but in the worldly ways, in the, in the language of modern day pagan Ashdod, when, when people do that, it only confuses and destroys definitions and it only causes more evil and confusion and eventually destruction of the misled masses, James 3, 14 through 16. I can't stress enough how important it is that we use the language God gave us to describe the things God did. 
could go a thousand different directions with this. Last Sunday night, we spoke in reference to how the language of the living God actually refers to certain things that the language of modern day Ashdod erroneously defines or refers to differently. For example, let me give you the four terms real quickly. The first one, in the Ashdodian language, they use the word pastor to mean any preacher. But if we know the language of God, a pastor is an elder who's met certain requirements. Another term that they totally mess up is hate. The world out there says if you correct somebody who's doing something wrong that's going to take them to hell, you hate them. God says that's love. We need to know the difference, and our kids need to know the difference. When our kids are willing to stand on the truth of the word of God and help somebody to try to see the right way to heaven, it is not hate, it is love. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22 that we covered last Sunday night. Another couple of terms that the world uses when they talk about traditional and contemporary worship, God doesn't use those terms. God says spirit and truth worship and vain worship. It's one or the other. And finally, what the world calls abortion. God calls murder or the shedding of innocent blood. But I fear that many of the next generation in the Lord's church may have become so desensitized so desensitized and used to the pagan religious world's definition and description of these terms that maybe they've lost sight of what God calls these things. And brethren, they, they can't. Read, read Nehemiah 13 again. You know, sometimes the world wears us down. I'm old school, I'll admit it. I'm old, but old school. Speaking of the world wearing us down, let me give you a quick example. We bought a car a little over a year ago. It's one of those that's got the mechanism where you pull up to a stoplight and the engine shuts off. I cannot tell you how much I detest that. Maybe it's from all those years living in Maine where the snow and the cold and the last thing you want once you've got a car running is for it to shut off at a stoplight. Maybe that's it, I don't know. Maybe it's just old school, okay, whatever. I hate that. But every time I get in the car and I go to take off and I get to the stoplight down here, but geez, I, I reach over and push that little button so that'll stop aggravating me. Well, we've had the car now for about 15 months and this button is relentless. It just keeps doing that thing unless I turn it off. Well, guess what? With fuel prices going up and everything, guess who's finally gotten used to let the car shut off at the, at the stoplight, right? It's like, really, Doug? My point is, is the world wears on us. Things wear on us when they are relentless. And, and the world is relentless at telling our kids these meanings, like if you correct somebody who's headed to hell, you hate them. And, and we can't let them fall into that trap of not knowing what God's word calls things. We cannot, for one minute, afford to have such an intimate and close-knit relationship with the world that neither we nor our children know or know how to correctly use the language of God anymore. We cannot let that happen and lose our spiritual identity. In fact, this message is so important to God that not only do we find it in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah as we've covered so thoroughly, but you know that same message is in the New Testament? 
Turn with me this morning in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll take a look at it. 1 Peter chapter 2, same message. 1 Peter chapter 2, I want for us to read verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The first thing I want for us to understand here in verses 9 and 10 is that this is kind of the crescendo. This is kind of the theme of Peter's first epistle. If you could, if you could put the main message in capsule form of this entire epistle, I believe it's right here in these two verses, that you're to be different. And I'll tell you why I believe that. Look at me, look with me for a moment at the rest of the book. Just think about this and you can flip and look if you'd like. In chapter one, Peter talks about how Christians are to be different or strangers and aliens when it comes to our behavior and love for one another because of our eternal destination. That's chapter one. In chapter two, Peter talks about how we are to be different or strangers and aliens when it comes to our hunger for, study of, and obedience to God's word, as well as our subsequent obedience to the laws of the land and the masters that we serve. That's chapter two. We're to be different than the world in those aspects. Chapter three, Peter talks about how we are to be different or strangers and aliens when it comes to our marital as well as other interactive relationships. In chapter 4, Peter talks about how others are going to respond to it when we are different. In verses 1 through 6, then he talks in chapter 4 how we are to be different or strangers and aliens when it comes to our prayer life and why in verse 7. And then he emphasizes again the necessity of our being different as shown by the way we love one another. And by the way, that's something he's also mentioned in every one of the previous three chapters as well, but he does again in chapter four, verses eight and nine. Then he goes on to say this in chapter four, verses 10 and 11. Look at this, look what he says. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. I find it extremely telling, and certainly no coincidence. In fact, I find it nothing short of divine providence. How the message that we have in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, as we've covered in chapter 13, is mirrored right here in the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter. Just as we saw in Nehemiah, how God's Old Testament people were to know and speak in the language or words of God, so too we see in 1 Peter how we who are a chosen generation, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, must also know and understand and speak and communicate the praises and premises and promises of God in the words of God in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Watch how this works. 
In 1 Peter 4.10, which we just read, God calls us to be good stewards of the gifts he's given us, right? That's what it says in verse 10, be good stewards. Then in verse 11, he's going to mention several of those good gifts we've been given that we are to be good stewards of. And guess what one of them is? One of those God-given gifts that we are to be good stewards of and to minister to others with is the word of God, the oracles of God. We are to be good stewards with that. So what exactly does it mean when it says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God? Well, the Greek word that is used here for oracles means the words or utterances of God. That's what oracles means. It's a fancy word for words or utterances of God. We can see that in the three other places that occurs in the New Testament. If you're taking notes, Acts chapter 7, verse 38, Romans chapter 3 and verse 2, and Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. Those are the other three places this Greek word is used. It's translated oracles here. That means words of God. So the phrase, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, means in its context, if anyone is going to be a good steward of and minister to others with the word of God, then he must speak just as the words of God speak. That's what it means. Let him speak as if they are the oracles of God, because they are, but let him also speak as the oracles of God speak. We must use God's language in teaching others if we're good stewards of the Bible, and that includes our children. They have to know God's meaning of these words. I find it telling, once again, that in the immediate aftermath of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Peter immediately goes on and goes into a comparison of what biblically uninformed people might be tempted to call certain things versus how God defines and refers to those same things. This is, this is not irony, this is providence. Right after he says, you've got to speak as the words of God speak, driving home the point of this little mini-series, immediately after that, Peter in the next few verses says, okay, the world says this is this, but he says, oh no, it's this. Let me show you what I mean. Look down through those next few verses. In verses 12 and 13, what many might refer to as strange, God says it's a cause to rejoice. The world thinks I'm strange. Don't think of some strange... This is a cause to rejoice, God says. In verse 14, what many, and, the, and this is written to church members, but what many might consider a reproach, what does God call it? A blessing. Remember, this is written to Christians. Okay? They're using some worldly terminology like, this is, don't think some strange thing was coming. This is a cause for rejoicing. Don't, don't think that when you call this a reproach, God says that's a blessing. God defines that as a blessing. In verse 16, while some might consider suffering as a Christian as something to be ashamed of, God says it's something to glorify him with instead. Can you imagine the difference it would make in our lives just looking at those few verses? If we use God's terminology instead of the world's terminology for that, this is saying, boy, I'm being reproached. Boy, the world is just really bearing down on me. If instead of saying that, we would, we would use God's language instead and say, boy, am I being blessed right now. Would that make a difference in the way we approach things? 
You see the difference in, in using the world's language and their definitions as compared to what God says it is? And this comes right after the passage where he says, as good stewards, you've got to speak like God speaks. You've got to speak as the oracles of God. Brethren, for those of you taking notes, you better get those pencils, pens warmed up. We must never get caught up in the language of modern-day Ashdod, understanding and communicating in pagan and perverted terms used by those who don't know the biblical language of God of heaven. Instead, we must, number one, speak to the world what we have learned from God, just like Jesus did in John 8, 26 and 28. We must speak God's commands just as he told us to just like Jesus did in John 12, 48 through 50. We must speak of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, just as Jesus did, Acts 1 and verse 3. We must speak the words, I'm sorry, we must speak boldly in the Lord, Acts 14, 3. We must speak the words of truth and reason, Acts 26, 25. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5, 19. And by the way, I, I guess stop right there. In the language of Ashdod, in the language of the world, when they are talking about worship music, they want to take what God said and, and put a totally different spin and word on it. God said that we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to sing and make melody in our hearts of the Lord. Is that what the book says? That's what God said. Your worship music, you speak to one another in these, sing. In the language of modern-day Ashdod, that means play, hum, entertain, listen. No, that's not worship music according to God. Let's not define that as worship music. That's not what God called it. Now, now the world can call it that if they want, if they don't know the word of God. But God said, sing to each other. See the difference? See, why, see how words matter? We are to speak the truth in love, the one and only eternal truth of the Lord God Almighty, Ephesians 4 and verse 15. Why? Here's why. Because God said what he meant. And God meant what he said. And God used the terms that he wanted to use and he settled and cemented and firmly established and inscribed those words in heaven as originally written for all eternity. Psalm 119, verse 89. Your word, O Lord, is forever firmly fixed in the heavens, ESV version. This is the same timeless and unchanging language and truth and terminology that has been passed down to you and me. This is the same word of God that has been given to you and me to teach to preach, to protect, and to cherish without compromise, without corruption, and without contamination if we ever want to get to heaven to spend eternity with the living word of God, which, by the way, he didn't change either. You know, the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 4 that at just the right time, God sent his son Galatians 4, first few verses, verse 4 in particular. Jesus coming to the earth was perfect timing. God's timing, right? Do you know that part of that providential and perfect timing 
Was it very soon after Jesus came to earth and died on the cross and was resurrected? It wasn't too long after that that the Greek of the day, the Koine Greek, became what they called a dead language. You know what a dead language is? That's a language that not many people use anymore. So guess what? Where not many people use it, it didn't go through a lot of changes. Like our modern day language is changing all the time. There's new terms, there's new usage of the same terms, and, and our language continues to evolve as new things are created. We go through all this stuff, and what things meant 30 years ago, they don't mean today. The Greek language didn't go through that. See, part of that perfect timing was we can go back to God's original Koine Greek, and we can say, well, that word right there means that. And we can know that it hasn't changed because it hasn't gone through all of the changes that a universally used type of language like English does. Therefore, just as Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, you and I cannot compromise or yield the truth of the words of God to modern day meanings for even the slightest of moments. Nor can we for the simplest of things nor can we allow our children to, despite the disproportionate amount of time that they spend with the world. Tonight, as we wrap up that little sermon mini-series, I'm going to go over three very basic but incredibly vital biblical terms which the religious world has so tortured and so twisted and so perverted and so convoluted that they have come to mean something totally different than the way God originally defined them and used them. And I hope everybody's back for that. Before this morning, I want to give you one more. And I could have chosen from a, from a list. But let me give you one example. Consider with me how the pagan world around us has corrupted and perverted the word arrogant or arrogance. Yes, you heard me right. Arrogant or arrogance. Now, before I go any further, let's get this squared away. Don't get me wrong. Being arrogant or displaying arrogance is absolutely wrong and sinful before God. Let me say it again so that there's no mistake. Being arrogant or displaying arrogance is absolutely wrong and sinful before God when... That is what it actually is according to God. That's the kicker. Arrogance is wrong. Third time, so just so that everybody's got this. Don't go home and say, Doug said it's okay to be arrogant. No, he did not. <laughs> Arrogance is wrong. Absolutely. When it is arrogance as defined by the absolute truth of God. Show you what I mean. The reason why arrogance is wrong, according to God, and as God defines it, is because arrogance is all about the sin of pride. In fact, did you know in the Bible that the word arrogance is often seen side by side with the word pride? Let me give you three quick examples. Number one, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Talk no more so very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Proudly and arrogant, side by side. Second one, 
Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way in the perverse mouth I hate. God, arrogance is wrong. No question about it. When it's arrogance as defined by God, when it is because of pride. Let me give you a third one. Proverbs 21, 24. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. Merriam-Webster actually has this one right even, when it says that arrogance means full of or due to unwarranted pride and self-importance. But the problem here is that in the spirit of the pagan religious Ashdodians, the way I just defined arrogance is not the only way that the world out there uses it today. See, they've got it meaning something a little bit different Consider this with me as I unfold this and then we, we get to the point. Did Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, ever act in ungodly, perverted, prideful arrogance? Yes or no? No, he did not. Not once, not ever did he ever act in prideful arrogance. Didn't do it. Okay? The Bible says that Jesus was meek, gentle, and lowly in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. The Bible says a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not quench. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 20. The Bible tells us that Jesus was humble to the nth degree. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross, Philippians 2. Jesus was as humble as they come. There was not a prideful bone in his body. Jesus was the last one on the planet anybody could have said was arrogant. God hates pride, arrogance, the evil way, and a perverse mouth. We just read those scriptures. Therefore, if Jesus ever even once reacted or responded with anything akin to the evil, haughty, arrogant, prideful arrogance as God, as God defines it, then he sinned. And we know he didn't. Okay? Next step. We all know that many times in the Gospels, there were a lot of the religious leaders of Jesus' day particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. And they came to Jesus, pushing their own selfish, religious, pride-bred wants and ideas and agendas. Many of them, we know, I mean, I could turn to scribes and Pharisees, we know, they came and they had all these uh, things that were counter, counteractive, completely contrary to the word of God. And they kept pushing them on Jesus. We've covered in the adult Bible class that Tuesday when he, when he nuked them all, the, the arguments. But they kept coming, they kept coming, they kept coming. Matthew chapters 15, 16, 19, 21, 22, 23, and others, okay? And what exactly did Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the pure and perfect and sinless and selfless Son of God do in every one of those circumstances where they came to him with their ungodly and unbiblical ideas did Jesus ever once act in sinful, selfish, and prideful arrogance? Did he? No, he did not. And yet, they claimed he did. As a matter of fact, not with that word, we'll get to it. They hated him for what they perceived as his arrogance. 
Matthew 26, 65, Mark 14, 64, and John 10, verse 33, what did they accuse him of? They accused him of blasphemy. Do you know what blasphemy is? Blasphemy is making oneself equal to God. If there was ever an epitome of arrogance, it would be for anybody who wasn't the son of God to claim that they were. That would be the epitome of arrogance. You're God? They accused him of blasphemy, the highest form of arrogance. But you see, what Jesus had actually done when these highly religious people with their own ideas and religion and agendas came to him, what, what had he actually done to them? They, they hated him for his blasphemy, the epitome of arrogance. They, they accused him of, of this, of, of speaking in a way he shouldn't have and, and being that arrogant, if you will, if I can use the term here. But what did Jesus actually do in those cases where they came to him? This is so key for our kids to know. What, what did they actually, what did he do? I'll tell you what he did. Every time they came to him, he simply loved them enough to tell them the truth, to give them time enough to repent so that they would not be lost. Is that how Jesus responded? Is that what he did or not? Yes or no? It's exactly what he did. What our all faithful Christians, but particularly our kids, desperately need to know is this. Whenever they humbly and simply know what the word of God says, and they love others enough <clears throat> to try to help others see the error of their ways by telling them the truth, they are often going to be accused of being judgmental, self-righteous, arrogant. And what they need to know when the pagan world uses those terms on them is that God defines their lovingly reaching out with the truth to try to help somebody see the error of their ways before they are sent to hell on judgment day. God does not define that like the world defines it. God does not define that as arrogance. God does not define that as judgmentalism. God does not define that as hate. How does God define it? I'll tell you how, good question. You guys ask the best questions. I'll tell you how God defines it. God defines that when our kids do that, when we do that. Don't you ever let anybody tell you that that's arrogance. Because what God calls that is righteousness, holiness, faithfulness, obedience. That's what the language of God calls it. When you are willing to speak the truth in love and try to help somebody get to heaven who's headed in the wrong direction. See how important it is that we know the word of God and the definitions of the words that God used. Do you see how important it is that our kids know that? So tonight, I hope you'll plan to return to wrap up this little sermon mini-series with a 
with, a, a three, with three words or phrases, again, which the language of Ashdod and the world around us has got so convoluted that it's, it's almost impossible for anybody who doesn't know the language and the word of God to discern one end to the other, which is right and which is wrong. They, they, and, I, and I hope you'll be here for that. I truly do. But this morning, <clears throat> I want to extend the invitation. I just want to tell you, <clears throat> there's a difference between believing something and, and being a believer as, as the Bible uses it on some occasions. The question is this morning, are you a believer in the biblical sense that you are one who believes enough or has believed enough in the past to obey the gospel, to become a member of the church by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, that opportunity is yours this morning. If you have and you're struggling with something that the church can help with, the Bible does tell us that the prayers of a righteous man are effective and we will pray for you. If you have a need right now, will you come to the front as we stand and sing? <clears throat>